Father, there's nothing more that would that we can say other than that's the cry of our hearts, Lord, that you would that you would help us to see, Lord, that you would remove the scales from our eyes and the, the wax from our ears, Lord, that we may hear, that we may hear your voice, that we may be responsive, Lord, that we may obey. Lord, that You would dwell among us as our Father, as our God. And Lord, that You would transform us, not through a moral code, but Lord, from the inside out, out of which we obey, out of which we honor, out of which we pursue with great passion. But Lord, I pray, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, Lord, that You would open our eyes that the light would come on, that we may see You in all, in all of Your glory, Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. You know, you can't do this marriage thing alone. It's tough. You know, I I learned, I've been married 31 years, and uh, marriage is tough. And it's tough because um, I needed a lot of change. I needed to grow up. And I didn't realize just how badly I needed to grow up. And uh, God has made me the man I am becoming because of my wife. And uh, it's to Him and it's to her that I owe just a tremendous amount of deep appreciation for my own, my own growth. But uh, every man, every woman goes into marriage feeling like they are prepared, don't they? <laughs> and it's not long before you realize that you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue. And uh, God is going to use each other to grow one another up. In the midst of this process, sometimes we get lost. And we realize that there are a few missing pieces in our understanding of what we of how we manage and how we grow in this marriage covenant, this divine covenant. That's what this series is all about, is trying to find those and understand those missing pieces so that we can have a complete picture of what God is calling us into. Because even though we are believers, we are formed in our understanding of marriage more by our culture than by Christ. So we are in that transformation process and this series started out with Ephesians 5, and it was supposed to be one message on Ephesians 5, and so far I think we're on number 4. Um, but today is, it's generated a lot of questions, and so today is going to be a Q&A session. We're going to do this here, and then in a couple more weeks we'll do it again, because it keeps generating questions, and when is this thing going to be over with? I don't really know. It was supposed to be over by early October when I was going to start the Gospel of Mark, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go with it. So the goal is that uh, we will be uh, spirit-led and not Martin-led. That would be really boring. So, All right, today as part of this Q&A session, I want to ask four men to come up. And uh, I want to ask Stan uh, Peterson, um, Jim D'Angelo, Dan Amos, and Steve Kearns, if you guys would all come up and take your place. Um, and some of you may be asking the question, well, where's the women, the female representation? Well, this kind of started out as a result of what came out of the men, the, addressing the men in the first couple of weeks. Now, some of the questions that I received have kind of gone beyond that, 
And uh, so I'm going to put some of those that go beyond that, that scope, and we're going to do that, we're going to address those later, because I do have too many questions for me to be able, for us to be able to deal with. So uh, that's just uh, where we are. Um, do we have mics? Do we have another handheld mic that we can use? Great. And if, and it's a big if, we have time, we will uh, take some questions from, from the floor. So, all right, you guys ready for this? Why don't you uh, introduce yourself, Steve, tell us how long you, you've been married and just pass the mic on down. Lorna and I have, are we on? Okay. Yep. Lorna and I have been married for 43 and a half years, and I'm still learning what it means to be a godly husband. Uh, Fran and I have been married. I'm Dan Amos. Fran and I have been married 26 years. And, uh, yeah, if I ever come to you and say I've got it all figured out, then, you know, just kick the stool out from under me and I'll start all over again. <laughs> I'm uh, Jim D'Angelo, and Sandra and I have been married 42 years this year. And, uh, no, I don't have it under, under, uh, figured out or understood, but I'm working on it. Hi, I'm Sam Peterson, and I have been married to my second wife. 10 years, so I went through a divorce, and it was horrible, but the Lord is, he is God, and he gives second chances, so uh, it's been a wonderful 10 years, and amen. All right, so we're going to fire the first question at you guys, and um, Dan, I'm going to ask you to take that first, first shot at this, and then you guys can... Um, can fill in any gaps that you may want to, and of course, I will always have a few words. Hopefully, emphasis on few. What do you do if one person wants to work on the marriage, but the other person does not? When one person is actively desiring change and growth, and the other person isn't willing to put in the time? If you would like to pass, you can choose the one that you would like to have answer. No, that's, that's all right. I'll uh, take a swing at this one. Um, in, in our marriage, that has happened, uh, and it's generally um, I'm, you know, floating along apathetically or, you know, just going along with the flow. Status quo is good. You know, let's just keep going on this way. And it's not really status quo because as you go along that way, uh, you start losing focus. And uh, every once in a while, Francis will say, hey. <laughs> we need to talk. Those four words that we all hate to hear. We need to talk. Someone's in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll talk and, and she'll bring things up and it's like, I can't say you're being unreasonable or that's unfair. Or it's because she always has very valid concerns. She always, uh, she has the best in mind for uh, our marriage. And it's not a selfish desire. It's always, um, there's more that we can have here, and um, we need to be intentional about it. And so, uh, speaking from the, uh, um, the side that's usually getting the, you know, we need to talk, uh, it's because I've lost focus, it's, and, and I need to uh, listen. And I... I always need to speak because that's probably one of my biggest things is I don't talk. <laughs> so does that answer the question? Yes. Okay. By the way, I'm Steve Kearns. I forgot to tell everybody that. 
I just wanted to add to that. Lorna and I accepted Christ together in February of 1974 as we were on the brink of divorce. And I became the one who wasn't interested in working things out. I just remained selfish in that. And the greatest thing that happened at that time in our marriage was the women in the church where we were saved started supporting Lorna in prayer, and they literally prayed me back to my wife. And so if you're in that situation where one is really trying hard and the other isn't, it's to me it's key and important to get the brotherhood or the sisterhood within the body to be praying. And God just does amazing things to... For me, it was an unrepenting and still a hardened heart, and that's where you need to go. Mm. I think uh, if it's coming from a man, I would say uh, take charge, lead, take responsibility uh, uh, where you're at and where you're going. And if your wife is not on board with you, then you need to, one, pray on your knees, and two, act out before her the love of Christ so that it gives her hunger and thirst. So you're not commanding, you're not directing, which is my... That's why I said men take charge, but you cannot command her or legislate her to follow God. She, she will, you want to uh, be an example to her so that she will long to follow God. And so as she sees Christ in you, she will see God and she will want Him and want to follow Him wholeheartedly by herself with you. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I would just add one thing, and then we'll move on. Um, remember when we talked about the divine covenant? It's not a covenant just between a man and a woman. It's a covenant between a man and a woman and God. And God is actively, actively involved and engaged in that covenant. So the answer to the question is not to grab the person by the collar and shake them and try to control, manipulate them, and if they don't do it, then punish them. The answer is is to realize that God is the, is the third chord in that, in, that, um, in that relationship. And you bring God to bear. And then you step back and you pray and you allow God to do what God's going to do. And yes, it may end up being a bit painful. But, if you really want change, God's going to create that within that person's life. Especially if that person is saved. If that person is not saved then that kind of creates a, some potentially different dynamics. But I do believe that you need to ask the question, um, why is this person not willing to engage at this level? Um, is there some level of responsibility that I have to take for that? Is it because the person has lost heart? Is it because I have disrespected or uh, treated the person in an un unloving way and the person has harbored unforgiveness and it's just walled the person off. And then if you do if you do have responsibility in that, and by the way, almost one hundred percent of the time there is a shared responsibility, you need to go to that person. You need to be willing to ask that person to forgive you. And to seek and to humble yourself so that in humbling yourself, as James says and first Peter says, in humbling yourself God will exalt you, and as God exalts you, He exalts the marriage. Okay, Bring the power of God into the relationship. 
live by the power of God the role that He has called you to and experience as a result of that the redemptive power of God in your relationship. Okay? So, there we go with that. Um, and if you, a couple passages, if, you, if you're a woman and you want to read and you want to understand that redemptive role, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 is a great passage to understand that. And that's powerful. And then Titus chapter 2, if you're wondering, how do I love my husband who is actually difficult to love? You press into the community, you go and you speak to other women, you seek wisdom and counsel, and then you follow it. Don't seek counsel and then ignore it. Proverbs calls that person a fool. So, okay? If you're going to seek counsel, embrace it. Embrace it. Okay, second question. What do you do when you look back on your marriage and family? And a lot of guys feel this way. And you feel like you failed. What do you do? Jim. That's a good question because I, I face that. And I cried out to God and I said, God, what can I do? Help me understand because I didn't understand. And I listened to a sermon. We were on the road, and I went to an Assembly of God church, and I got a message. And it was about how to pray, how to pray effectively. And this is a prayer that I, that I did. I said, Lord God, make me the husband, the father, the friend, the grandfather that I need to be because I'm not. Change me, Lord. Don't change the other person, but change me. And God changed me. And I started improving my relationship with my wife, and that was awesome. And then I started changing my relationship with my children by meeting their needs and serving them and loving on them. And God has changed our family to one of unity and love, where it was never there before. And I think it's important to recognize that God holds men responsible for making that happen in a family. We have got to lead on that or it will not happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, to piggyback on that, Jim, when we as men or women recognize that we've had failures in our past, one of the things to do is own it. And oftentimes that means going and asking for forgiveness for injuries or damage that we've done. And that in and of itself is the beginning of healing an important thing is, is Satan wants to use them things against us. We need to rebuke him and say, I'm here now, I'm moving forward. And with God's help and the Holy Spirit's help, we can do that. Mm. Any other thoughts? What's that? They said covered it for me. Okay. I've got a few more. <laughs> and <laughs> every man looks back and as he grows he looks back and he sees how far he's come or how far he needs to go and he really does deal with failure what a man's greatest fear is that of failure okay man's greatest fear is that of failure um But it's important that men own the failure, like Steve said. 
and that you mourn the failure. You mourn it. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Um, If you don't mourn it, then you tend to just cover it over and ignore it. Um, But I think you have to ask the, the question, was the failure willful? Was it just because you knew better, but you chose not to? Um, or was it the overall trend of failure, ignorance? Um, I was never taught these things. I had a, a, an older gentleman walk up to me back in 1999. And I was preaching a series on marriage and parenting. And he, said, he walked up to me and he said, Martin, he said, my generation was never, ever told these things that you are speaking of now from Scripture. And there was a whole generation that was never taught about how to be a husband, how to be a father, in a truly gospel, biblical sense. So there's a lot of ignorance. So, But was it ignorance? Or was it just immaturity? And that is, you know more than what you practice. For me, that's what a lot of my failure was. I could tell you the gospel, I could tell you about marriage, but yet it hadn't been pressed into my character to be able to shape my character so I could live it out yet. Um, but it's important to understand and have a level of self-awareness so that you can understand just what it is you're repenting of. What it is you're repenting of. And then to admit the failure to your wife. Don't simply cover it over. Men will oftentimes take and run and hide when they have failed. They'll be like Adam. They'll run to the bushes. And uh, they won't want to deal with it because of shame and self-contempt. And uh, no one wants to admit they failed. Right, men? <laughs> and so there becomes this giant dead elephant in the middle of the room that we just live lives and we throw a rug over and we pretend it's not there. But we need to admit it to your wife and stop denying the obvious. Um, there are often times when I've often got to ask my wife, how are you experiencing my leadership now? Are you, are you experiencing unconditional love? And that's a fair question. Because that's an assessment question. I've, I, think it's, I think I'm doing well up here. But if she's not experiencing it in the way in which I think she is, then I'm all wet. So you've got to be willing to ask the question, am I experiencing that? And we talked about that in the past. But you've got to be able to go and admit it to your kids. Many times I've had to sit down with my boys. All three of them, 29, almost 23 and almost 21, and said, I'm sorry. You know, the most recent time was with Nathan um, down in in the Goodyear parking lot. We were waiting to get tires on his truck and uh, waiting for them to open. And just God brought some things up. And I just had to say, you know, I meant this this way, but this was taken this way, and I'm sorry. And there's great freedom in that, and there's the elevation because there is humility, and when we are humble, God elevates us. There is great respect that comes out of that on those to whom you admit the failure to. Hey, Martin. Yes. One thing back on the fear of failure thing, mm-hmm. uh, or showing it, is a lot of times we won't try because of that fear of failure. Mm. Uh, Unpack that. What do you mean? When you when you when you fear that you're going to fail at something. Just don't even try. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that leads to inaction. 
And so there's that thing that's missing there, but it's, it's not necessarily that uh, you don't want to do it. It's just that uh, I think I'm going to fail at it and I don't want to look bad. Mm. Ladies, understand this. A man will never want to willingly or eagerly go into battle to a battle that he's not sure he can win. Okay? Men are just that way. We're, we're afraid of failure, so we give up and we don't even try. So, but that's where men, the, word, the very word for Hebrew, for the Hebrew term male is zakar, and it means the one who remembers. What do we remember? We remember the ways of God. And we live into that regardless of how afraid we are, regardless of whether or not we're going to fail or succeed. We just say, God, I'm going to remember the ways of God and I'm going to live into that. It's a choice. And just a practical example out of my life for that is devotion time and sitting, gathering the family around for devotion. And you hear all these things the world says, all these things the church says, oh, that never works, don't do it, the lies that come at you. And then you're afraid of what it's going to look like. And you're you know, sitting there in your living room, you know, afraid of not being able to answer a question maybe your kid has or your wife's going to ask you. All these fears just come at you, and, and just I encourage you all to step out and to lead the way that God would have you to lead, and He will bless that immensely. And so, do not be afraid of those practicalities of, of fear of leading your family. Um, it's just, yeah. So it's tough. A point there in somewhere, but anyways, that's one of the practical fears that I have going before my family is leading them in devotion and worship of God. My kids used to sit with me and say, Dad, why do we have to pray? Yeah. Dad, why do you, why do you ask you? We, we hear you preach all the time. I sat with my oldest son on Friday up in Marysville, and he wants me to disciple him. Yeah. 29 years old. And, uh, and he said, Dad, he said, I watched your example even though I fought against it. And he says, I understand now. Now that he has a daughter. And so press into it, guys. Press into it. Just, it's just like going to war. You know what? If the commander in chief says, take that hill and hold it no matter what, you know what you do? You take that hill and you hold it no matter what. Okay? Any other thoughts, guys? All right. Next question is, I really want to love my wife as Christ loved the church and to be a good husband. But my efforts... While I admit they are not perfect, are never good enough. I feel defeated. I want to be like Jesus, but I'm not Him. I want to be like Jesus, but I'm not Him. I guess that's more of a statement than it is a question. But how would you guys like to respond to that? One of the things that, uh, that I've learned here in a community group, or I'm not sure where we learned it, but I think we went over the five love languages. And the revelation to me was, I speak love to my wife through acts of service. She thinks that's great, but that's not what speaks love to her. She, she receives love from me, in gifts and words of encouragement. And, and that does change over time, so guys, it's a moving target. Um, <laughs> so you can't learn it you know, right up front and expect it to be the same thing for the next 50 years. It will change, and it will vary. 
Um, and it, it's one of those hard things for me is, is communication. I have to be constantly, uh, well, I'm not constantly. I need to be in tune with her to understand how she's receiving what I'm saying. And then there's that love and respect thing of I'm speaking with a blue megaphone, she's hearing with pink hearing aids, and vice versa. Um, what I'm saying isn't necessarily how she's receiving it. And the only way to get around that is to talk to each other about, you know, here's what I see. Um, how do you receive that? And, and ask her and, and find out. Mm, mm, good. That one resonates with me because I've asked that same question before, but it's really myself and my pride and how am I measuring, you know, I'm measuring it by my own standard. If she should, she should want to feel love. I've done this, done this, done that. And she should feel love out of that. And so it's my standard, really. It's turning it back on me, you know, myself, versus understanding, listening, knowing your wife and what really it is, like Dan said, going and feeding into that. So I agree with both Dan and Stan, and I'll put on my professional hat for a minute. Um, one of the things I learned in psychology in college was we all bring our upbringing and baggage with us. And sometimes the way our spouses respond to us or we respond to our spouse is a direct result of how we were raised. I just, Lauren and I would have a problem and I would clam up because that's what my dad would do. He'd sit back on the couch and smoke a cigarette and drink coffee and mom was gone and he wasn't hearing a word. I learned that. What you have to do is open communication. You have to understand where the other person's coming from. And until way late in our marriage, in the 43 years, I started talking to Lorna about this, and I go, you know, this is the way I was raised. This is what I learned to do. It's the wrong thing to do, but it's where that person's coming from. So if your spouse is not acceptant of all your efforts in that, you need to sit down and have an honest, open discussion. And, you know, what's causing this? You know, where are you coming from? And as frightening as it is, it's a blessing to a relationship. Mm. Amen. Uh, one of the things I found uh, between Sandra and I, I've, I've used the same words. And it had nothing to do with her, but it did have a lot to do with me. And what I didn't realize is that the reason why I was not having any victory in my life is I didn't really understand who I was in Christ. And I started praying, asking God to reveal to me why I had no victory, why I was struggling. And, and though I felt forgiven, and I felt the blessing of that, I didn't feel where I was being impacted in the change of my life towards others. And I struggled with that for about three months. And, and I prayed about it every day for three months. But at the end of that, God opened up a book to me. It, 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 the book doesn't matter. It was Victory Over Darkness by uh, Neil Anderson. But when I finished reading the book, I understood who I was in Christ. And from that perspective, it changed everything about who I was with everybody around me, especially my wife. Mm. And that was a profound change. And it really changed the whole direction of my life, knowing that. Amen. Got just a couple of thoughts I want to add. A lot of times when a man asks this question, it's because he may be married to a woman who is um, 
a perfectionist who is, ends up being a bit contentious. She may not even realize it. But um, I want to speak to the women about this for a moment here. I want to encourage the women. Understand that your husband is not Jesus. Someday he will be like Jesus, but it's not until he stands before Jesus, according to 1 John 3. Um, and you need to celebrate every effort, every effort that he makes. And you cannot, you cannot take and point out every failure that he has. Um, every, you cannot get what I call historical, okay? Um, it's kind of like hysterical, but it looks backwards. Um, it's destructive to a man. It's destructive to a man. Proverbs, Solomon told um, his son when he was given him wisdom on the kind of woman to marry. He says, marry a wise woman. And he says this in Proverbs 14.1, the wisest of women builds her house. And the idea is one brick at a time. Now, how do they do that? Well, according to the scope of Proverbs, it's through respect. Okay? It's through gentleness. It's through encouragement. Okay? Um, it's through praising Him. It's through all of that. Um, but a foolish woman will tear it down brick by brick with her own hands. The foolish woman in Proverbs is one who is contentious. One who is just always picking. Always picking. Who always has the sense in, the, in living in this person's presence, you always get the sense that this person, I can, I'm never good enough. I'm never good enough. And like I said, a man is afraid of failure. And a man struggles to fight a battle he's not sure he can win. So what will happen is he will withdraw, he will give up, and in the imagery of Proverbs, he'll go and he'll find he'll live in a corner of the roof. All in an effort to try to maintain his sanity. Okay? So, you have the power, ladies, to bring what I call shalom to your home, and that's peace and human flourishing, or you have the power to bring destruction to a home by how you approach success and failure. Okay? By how you approach it. You can approach it in a redemptive way, or you can approach it in a death, in a, in a way that gives death. Okay? Now, men can do the same thing. I know women who are married to very contentious, perfectionistic men, and it destroys them. So, Understand that that works both ways. That that works both ways. Okay? And my marriage is a testimony to that, to my wife, just as by the grace of God I am who I am and by my wife. And she lived that out over the years. I was very opinionated, very domineering, very controlling in my marriage. I loved God and she loved God. But I just didn't see how controlling I was and just how I was just squashing her. And I was, every moment, you know, it was just like, it was horrible. And I look back on that, I go, oh, by the grace of God, I'm still married to this woman and I still have her. So 
It's just my life, my marriage is a testimony to the fact that she has lived it out. And she encourages me. She spurs me on. She withholds words of anger and words that will destroy. But she lifts up with uh, words of life and encouragement. And she calls out the things that are not into which they are. Uh, and by faith, she believes. She sees the good. You know, She overlooks the sin and she sees the good in me. And she pulled that out. She pulled that out. She's continually doing that to me. So I just encourage you as wives to, to do that. Amen. Amen. Any other thoughts on that? Okay, here's a question that you are not prepared for. Okay. As you look... As you... Some of you have been married over 40 years. Some of you have been married to 10 years. But what is one truth that you know now, that you wished you would have known when you got married, that you would like to pass on to the next generation? Steve. (laughs) Believe it or not, I just heard this from a neighbor last week. Lauren and I were out walking, and he had stopped to check his mail, and we were chatting with him, and I don't even remember what the subject was. But he made this comment, and I wish I would have known it 43 years ago. A happy wife makes for a happy life. It it sounds funny, but I mean, God in Genesis two eighteen told Adam it's not good for man to be alone, and that he was going to make a suitable helper for man. Our wives are gifts from God in that respect, and because He used the word suitable, I mean they're made specifically for us. It's our goal to cherish them as a gift from God to make their life happy and not miserable. And I didn't know that for 30-some years of our marriage. And I wish I would have known it at the beginning. I married a good-willed woman. Uh, And that has to be the prism through which or the lens through which I view everything that happens is that she's a good-willed woman. And she wants the best for me. She wants the best for our family. And if I look at it from the standpoint of she's nagging me or she's doing whatever, uh, she's selfish, it's because I'm selfish. Uh, she wants the best for us. And that is a key thing is, is when you look at it, she didn't marry you know, somebody that was going to be perfect, and I didn't marry someone that was going to be perfect either. Um, in fact, I was thinking about this the other day when uh, a few weeks ago when I was telling Luke, don't get married. Um, <laughs> in the context of that, it was, you're going to Michigan, do not marry somebody from the East Coast. You're going to live here. Um, so wait until you come home to get married. Uh, to which he answered, he'll, whoever he marries, they'll live here with him. Uh, <laughs> good luck with that. So um, I was thinking about it. She was not perfect. I was far from perfect. And we're not perfect yet. We never will be. But as a married couple where she's a good-willed woman and I'm a good-willed man, God is perfecting us together. And is there one perfect person out there for you? Now there is. Francis is the perfect person for me. And that's because God is perfecting us together. And so we have been changed in a way that doesn't fit with anybody else.
Amen. Amen. Don't get married without God in your life and in your marriage. Do not be unequally yoked. My wife uh, testified this to a group about this size uh, some years back. She said, I was married to a man for 29 years, and now I'm married to a godly man, and there is no difference. I jumped and said, well, it's the same man. She says, no, it's not. You've got to have God first for the marriage to work. You just do. And that's what I wish I'd have known 42 years ago. Even though all those emotions and those feelings and those hormones are just jumping within your bodies and your minds and your hearts and you look at it, well, we can overcome these differences. You can't. You cannot do it. You cannot change each other. You don't change yourself with God. Hmm. So if you try to change someone else, it will not work for you. Amen. I think uh, as of this morning, <laughs> the truth that had an impact on me, I was reading uh, in my bed, and I just, this verse, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And I can be renewed on that verse forever. And just, it's a simple verse, but it's so profound. If we do not love, we do not know God. And he does not know us. And that's why at the end he says, "You, those who profess my name and do these things and do those things, but you did not love. We have this example, and within that context, it's the propitiation. We're going to get to that. So, But that for me, I still dwell on that. I still go back to that. Am I loving my wife? Am I loving others as God has loved me? So, Amen. Amen. All right, guys, I'm going to take the final question myself. So thank you very much for for joining us. And just if you can move the chairs over there. I've been um, chewing on this final question all week. And um, something I'm very emotional about. And it's this question, how do I love my wife unconditionally if I don't feel God's unconditional love? Um, huge, huge question. Huge question. The problem is, is that we know, while we know the teaching in our minds of the gospel of God's unconditional love, this belief of the gospel is compromised by unresolved guilt over one's past sins. So you may believe that God came for you and died for you and has saved you, but you're always waiting for the hammer to fall because of what you did in your past. So you're, you're, you're like a, a child growing up in an angry household. You're always walking on eggshells. And there's always this sense of fear of when's the hammer going to fall. Um, this belief is also produced by being raised in a performance-based home. And what I mean by that is when one's personal value, acceptance, and worth are celebrated or diminished, or diminished based upon one's behavior and achievement. Sort of the carrot and the stick imagery. You know, I love you, but I'll love you more 
if you just chase this carrot, this behavior standards, these things. And if you really reach out and grasp it at that point in time, then, boy, I'm really going to give you it all. I'm going to give you all my love and acceptance. And you, you press into that and you, as a child, you want to obey all the rules as best as you can. And you make that if you're fo- your focus, if you're a well-intentioned child. But then you feel like you're about ready to grasp it and it moves forward and you can't grab it. I sat... I sat with a man and his 13-year-old son and we were talking about sports. And the man says, yeah, my son really enjoyed sports as a child. Played soccer. And the son said, no, I didn't enjoy it. Well, you acted like you enjoy it. You did really well. No, I, I hated it, Dad. Well, you sure acted like it. Well, Dad, that's just because I really wanted you to be proud of me. Well, you sure acted like it. That's just what a good faker I am. His son had given up on ever receiving the adoration, the acceptance of his dad, and the value that comes about as a result of that. When we are raised in a performance-based house, value and acceptance and worth and our identity is all based upon whether or not we meet these certain expectations within the home. Within the home. And all of this leads to believing a false gospel. Where salvation may be a gift, but... God's acceptance and love are earned by keeping rules and regulations. By keeping rules and regulations. And this is often reinforced by the community of I will love you if you fill in the blank. We will accept you fully. We will embrace you fully relationally. We will show we will make you a, a full member, a full part of this community, and you'll sense that and you'll experience that if you do these things, you keep these rules. And that's a false gospel that we preach to ourselves. Of God, you may have saved me, but I really don't feel your love and your unconditional love and acceptance. And I know what the Word says, but as one person wrote to me in an email around 12 years ago, I find it undeniably true, God's unconditional love and acceptance, but I have absolutely no experience of it in my life. Performance. Performance. There is a false gospel that we listen to. So how does a true gospel reform or reshape these falsehoods within us. The Gospel is much greater, much bigger than just God saves us to someday put us into heaven with Him. It's much, much, much more profound in life transforming, life altering than that. And we don't get it. I didn't get it until I was about 37 years old. 37 years old. And I'd been in ministry for almost 10 years. 
I was still very much on a performance based. And I could tell you the gospel and I could exegete the passages, but I was preaching the false gospel to myself every day. Every day. We've got to understand that the true gospel defines my identity totally apart from whether I keep or don't keep rules. He, he, the true gospel, declares my identity based upon God's choice of me. Period. He declared me to be His Son long before I could ever, ever keep any rules or regulations. He declared me to be His Son. He adopted me as His Son. That was His declaration and I had nothing to do with it. And I do nothing to keep it. That was all God. (laughs) Why would He do that? Well, because He knows I'm going to eventually get there. No, He did it out of love, according to Ephesians 1.4. In love, He chose us. In love, He chose us. So God defines my identity and God therefore declares my acceptance of Him or His acceptance of me. And how can He do that when I am such a screwed up individual? It's because Jesus is my righteousness, not my righteousness. I have no righteousness. I have nothing to prove to Him by keeping rules because I can't keep them. I can't keep them. I can't meet my parents' expectations. I can't meet your expectations. So when I realize that, does it cause me to fall apart deep inside and shrink back in shame and self-contempt and self-hatred? No. Fifteen years ago, yes. Now, no. Because God has convinced me that I can't keep the rules well enough to earn enough righteousness to where He will then feel obligated to accept me and declare me worthy. He says, you'll never get there. So therefore, I give you my righteousness. And it's because of that, according to Ephesians 1, that we are declared holy and blameless in Christ. Not in my ability to meet mom and dad's expectations. Not in my ability to meet your expectations. Not even my ability to meet something as noble and as profound and as positive and as good as the Ten Commandments. He declares me righteous. And He gives me His righteousness. That means the basis of my value and my worth and acceptance to God And His people is His righteousness. That's why when someone falls or someone struggles, we don't withdraw the community from them and thereby try to take and say, you're not worthy of us. Even though that may be what many churches do. Not even knowingly do it. Community is wrapped around and infused with 
the grace of God, not the grace of Martin or the grace of John or the grace of Jeff. It's the grace of God. The grace of God. Now what do you do about sin within the community? That's another, another time. But it's all, all of it. Sin, no sin. It's all infused with redemptive grace. With redemptive grace. And this gives me the ability to say, I no longer have anything to prove. I remember when I, soon after I got married, I was working in a wood shop making windows, frames. And I just started there and I was in Indiana and I was struggling and I was just feeling like a complete failure and it was shaking me to my core. My identity was fracturing because of that. And I was just so tense and so nervous and so anxious. I called Kim and I said, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Because I wasn't able to meet their quota and their expectations. It shook me to my core. But when we understand the foundation of our identity, it sets me free and the pressure is removed. You know how much freedom I have now knowing I don't have to meet your expectations? Do you know how frustrating that may be for some of you of what power do I have over you then? (laughs) You have no power over me. The power that is over me is the grace and the calling of God. And pleasing Him and living into that. Not living into mom and dad's expectations, community expectations, friends' expectations. And that is a maturing process. It sets me free in all my failures to to meet expectations. Um, It sets me free. It sets me free. Um, This frees me from the uncertainty that I need to hide when I fail in fear and shame and contempt. I don't need to hide. I really don't need to hide from anyone. Does that mean I have something to hide or I don't have anything to hide? No, if I were to be driven by shame and contempt, I'd have all kinds of things worth hiding. But that's that's not the basis of my worth, my value, my acceptance. I no longer have anything to prove to earn your love or your acceptance. I no longer have to be shackled by the chains of slavery or cower in shame and self-contempt and self-hatred because I fail to meet someone's expectations. Your self and your, your sense of self and identity are not shattered anymore. You're free. But this is the tough, difficult part. We continue to preach the false gospel to ourselves day after day after day because it goes so deeply into our backgrounds. But that's why we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We've got to preach the gospel, not preach, but speak the gospel into one another's lives. Reminding one another who we are in Christ and these failures and these successes don't define us. We need to speak that into our kids' lives. Your successes and your failures do not define you. God defines you. And therefore, I treat you as God has declared you to be. And that was one of the things I had to confess to my sons was I had these expectations. And they were well noble and they were well-intentioned. 
but they had to meet them. They had to meet them. Or they risked with being, having my love and my acceptance withdrawn, which would affect their worth and their value and their sense of identity. Okay? We must speak the gospel to one another and just realize that the gospel, our awareness of the power of the gospel, must eat through all the falsehoods in our lives like an acid to get down to our core. And that takes time and that takes maturity. And that's why Paul gives this great, awesome declaration in Ephesians 1 through 11, 1 through 11 about who we are in Christ. And then he turns around and he prays, and I pray that the lights will come on. <laughs> that you will know that the lights will come on and you will know all that I have said to be true, not just in your ears, not just in your brain, but as it permeates down to your soul. Because that's the only thing that's going to help you last. And then in Ephesians 3, it says, I just pray, I pray that you may know, understand the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of God's immeasurable, excessively immeasurable love for you. That unconditional love. But it is something that we continue, must learn day after day after day after day until we meet Jesus. Until we meet Jesus. And that's why he says in 1 John 3, he said, man, you are the children of God and that is who you are. And everyone who understands this purifies himself. He presses into that until they see Jesus face to face. So it presses us in and it presses us down. All the while uprooting, eating away the old false gospel of good works and raising up within us the true gospel of the grace of God. The love of God. So when you understand that you're not experiencing the unconditional love of God, do not deny that truth, but get on your knees and press into that and say, God, Drill that down deeply into my life. Drill it into my life. Drill it into my life. One of the ways we do that is through this table. Because this is the reminder. The reminder. The reminder. Of what Christ did for us before we ever did anything good or bad. He says, I love you. You don't have to prove anything to me because I know you can't prove anything to me, so I'm going to prove this to you. And I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to give you my love, my acceptance. I'm going to give you everything. And then I want you to begin to live in that. Free, unshackled from fear, from self-contempt, from shame, from self-hatred. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? we got to get this. Otherwise, we will always live life with a chip on our shoulder saying, I have something to prove. And that something to prove is this, and that is I'm valuable. I am worth your love, your acceptance. And that forms our identity. Okay? You have, if you have Jesus, you have nothing, nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. Except humbly say thank you. Thank you, Jesus.
So if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would fully encourage you to support and to celebrate this. (laughs) And we're going to invite you to come forward to receive and to be reminded once again that this is Christ's body that was broken for you and this is Christ's blood that was shed for you before you could do anything good or bad or worthy or unworthy or anything. Okay? He did it for you. Amen? Amen. Father, as we come before Your table, Lord, may You take and may You drill down deeply these truths of the Gospel by the power of Your Spirit because, Lord, we got a false Gospel that is within us and it must die to the true Gospel. The Gospel of Your unconditional love, Your sacrifice, Your taking our sin upon Jesus and Him dying for it and receiving Your punishment that I deserve and giving us Your righteousness. Lord, and wiping away all of our sin and the stain and the guilt of that. Father, forgive us for how we pick up that brush and we paint ourselves again and again and again with that ugly stain. So Father, meet us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.